one better? Is it more better? <laughs> so I think, uh, I think most people have heard the adage, uh, know thyself. And if you ask them, they would agree uh, that it probably is a good, a, bit good, uh, a good bit of wisdom and that people ought to follow that advice. And they would say that even if they themselves haven't done that, haven't followed that advice, that is. Uh, that's often the case uh, with uh, wisdom or what people think is wisdom. People hear it and they know the saying, but they don't really do anything with it. Now, historically, that little piece of wisdom that I showed you is called a, is one of the Delphic maxims of the ancient Greek world, and it's often attributed to uh, Plato's teacher, um, uh, or Socrates as Plato's teacher, but it certainly predates either one of them, probably going back to Egypt. And it has been repeated uh, and spoken with great and grave authority by many people through the years, some of whom have no doubt tried to heed their own advice. Now, I would agree with it that it is a good piece of wisdom as far as human wisdom goes, but there's a problem with it. The difficulty is is that left to ourselves, we can't get there. Uh, Unaided, we can never really know ourselves. And the Bible explains the problem this way. The heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? The prophet is saying that you and I cannot know our own heart. It's too devious, or as Gollum would say, it's tricksy. On our own, you and I can never know ourselves as we should. The answer to our dilemma, of course, is to turn to God. Uh, Only God knows us as we really are. And so if we want to have real knowledge of ourselves, we need to find it from God through God's word. So now that phrase, know thyself, is not anywhere in the Bible. At least I couldn't find it in any of the multiple versions that I searched just to make sure. But even though those exact words are not there, the concept really is throughout Scripture. God always tells us the truth about ourselves. And the most important truth that we need to know about ourselves and about our loved ones and about humankind has four parts to it. They're all related and they're all essential. First, you and I are sinners, and that is we do things that we know we should not do, and we don't do things that we know that we should do. In other words, we prefer ourselves to anyone or anything else, which means we're lost and undone. We're deserving only of condemnation, no matter how nice we might think we are. And there's that deceitful heart uh, uh, that we were talking about. What we tend to think, left to ourselves, we tend to think that we're really better than we really are. We just don't know the truth until God reveals it to us. We're sinners, and we're lost and undone. And then second, once we realize that fact, that we are indeed sinful human beings, and we have to understand that we cannot 
save ourselves. I mean, we think we can. Our first response is almost always to try to do better, but we fail, and we fail miserably. And the harder we try, the more we fail. We don't even realize how steep we are in sin until we honestly try to live a righteous life. We can no more save ourselves than we can jump to the moon with just our own two legs. And truly, you have a better chance of reaching the moon by jumping than saving yourself from your sins. So our tricksy heart would tell us otherwise. Which brings us to the third thing, the, the very thing that each of us needs to know. And that is that God, because he loves us, even though we're sinners, even though we can't get it right, no matter how hard we try, God sent his son into our world to save us. Jesus, and only he, can save us. He died in our place to take our sins away. In the place of our sins, he gives us life, his life, which because it's his, is eternal life. The fourth thing brings us back to us. Uh, It's not enough just to know the truth. Once you know the truth, then you have to act on that truth. God's offering you life, but you have to accept it. You must agree with God's assessment of you, and you have to ask him to forgive you and make you his child, and he will. If you ask him that, he will. He's promised it. He gives us his word on the matter in the Bible. And if there is one truth that God wants you to know about yourself and about him, this is it. This is the great choice, the eternal option, the the momentous decision which is put before every human being. And what you do with it will determine where you will spend your forever. And so if you're here today and you haven't understood this truth until now, If you haven't gone to God asking him to forgive you and save you, then you can do it right now, right where you're sitting. In the silence of your heart, you can speak to the living God. You can tell him, I know I'm not what I should be. I know I failed. And if I understand what that man is saying, my failure means separation from everything that is good forever. And I don't want that. I want you to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to make me your own. And if you do that right where you are, God will forgive you. And you will belong to him forever and ever. And there is nothing more important than I'm going to say today than that if you're in that situation. And if you do pray that prayer today, if you do ask God to do that, you need to tell somebody because it will help to solidify that in your heart and your mind. I'd love to hear about it, but you don't have to tell me. Tell a friend, tell somebody who knows a Christian. But put your trust in Christ while you can. Now, most of us here in this room have already done that. We have, we've come to Christ for forgiveness for our sins. Uh, we've begun a lifelong journey in, in the same direction as we leave behind our old life and we learn to walk in the new one. As believers, though, we too need to know ourselves. Uh, 
And the Apostle Paul has a similar piece of advice to the people in Rome. And so we find it in the letter to uh, the Romans, which he wrote in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And I want you to invite you to join me there once again. We're making our way through this letter over the last year. Um, and we're in this chapter, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And of course, Jim will have the texts up on the uh, screen on either side of me. So this section begins in verse 3 by instructing the believer to have an accurate and knowledge, uh, uh, honest knowledge of themselves. And our faith is the standard by which we measure such things. So there's several parts to this verse, and we're going to read it, and then we're going to take it apart so that maybe we'll understand it a little bit better. So verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, Paul's instruction here did not originate with himself. It was a result of God's grace. And grace, of course, is, uh, is always unmerited. We never earn that. It, it's something good which God gives us, which we don't earn, that we don't participate in other than accept. And the good thing which God is imparting to us through the apostle is to tell us that we need to have an accurate an honest understanding of who we are in Christ. And that begins by not thinking too highly of ourselves. You know, pride is always a danger for us. It's far too easy to get tangled up in ourselves and not really see what's going on in us or in the world around us. Friday night... um, I sat down with uh, my daughter, Addie, and my wife, Anne, and we watched that new release of uh, Beauty and the Beast, you know, the one with the real people in it, right? And and I realized as I was watching that I had never seen the original uh, 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 story all through. I had seen bits and pieces here and there, you know, the talking teacup and the clock, uh, things like that, but I had never seen the whole thing. And so two nights ago, I met... Gaston. <laughs> uh, oh, Gaston, every man's man, uh, or so he thought. And that scene where he was looking at himself in the mirror is absolutely priceless to me. He looked in that mirror and he saw perfection and he could hardly drag himself away. He, and he knew that that's just exactly what everyone else saw too when they looked at him. And in front of that mirror, the inner workings of his heart were revealed. In his eyes, though no one was really good enough for him, he had decided to marry Belle. At least their children would be good-looking, he said to his reflection. How could she refuse? He was Gaston. The problem was, he gave Belle a major case of the icks. Such wonderful acting in that story. You could see her shudder at the thought of marrying him. 
Not if he were the last man on earth. You could almost hear her say it. Bell saw him more clearly than he saw himself. She was not blinded by his pride, but he was. His pride corrupted him, and it caused him to go down an evil path, and unfortunately, he led others down that same path. Now, we ought not to think too highly of ourselves, or we could end up going down that same path of that sad man, Gaston. He shows us where the road of pride leads if we travel on it long enough. But you want to know something, my friends? Most of us haven't gone that far. The pride which endangers us is more subtle, and it's more devious than that. And the first step on that path, on Gaston's path, is when we begin to think that, yeah, we're sinners, but we aren't as bad as old so-and-so. We start to compare ourselves to other people, and somehow we manage, don't we? There's that deceitful heart again. We manage always to make the comparison with those who we think don't quite measure up. And in that light, we look pretty good. Next to Gaston, we look great. But he's not the measure, is he? Our faith is. And when we bring our faith to bear on the matter, if we do, we end up in a different place. We don't look down on other people, and we don't think too highly of ourselves. We end up, as verse 3 says, having a sober judgment about ourselves. That is, we see ourselves as we really are. Now, you're not being told here in this text. I want you to know you're not being told here to think bad things about yourself. We're to think of ourselves with sober judgment, or as the New American Standard puts it, a sound judgment. And an honest evaluation of, of the self has to include facts that, uh, that are on the downside. Uh, we're sinners and we're prone to sin. We cannot save ourselves. We struggle still with sin in our lives. We are God's creatures made in his image, but that image has been marred by our sin. We're not able to stand on our own. We need others and other things around us. That is, we are dependent, not self-existent beings. Now, on the upside, we're loved by God. And we're capable of loving other people. And we're made in his image. And that image is being restored in us. We're capable of doing great good as we allow God's life to flow through us. And we are a positive Influence a positive force in our lost world. And yet all of that is not because of us, but because of God's grace to us. You know, in that story that I watched Friday night, the beast had been made hideous on the outside because that was what he was on the inside. And even seeing himself as he was, wasn't enough to change him. It was Belle's love that made the difference. It was her love that enabled him to leave behind what he was and become, well, a noble person. That's what God's love does for us. It's a process 
in our life. We haven't arrived yet. We stumble all along the way, but the journey has begun. We're not complete in ourselves. We're prone to pride, but when we think of ourselves in the light of our faith, we see things so much more clearly. And God's love is set free at times like that to work in us. So to know ourselves, we, we need to have a sound judgment which comes from God's Word. Now, in, in our text today, Paul tells us some other things that we need to know so we can have a realistic understanding of ourselves. And the first one involves our relationship with the church. And, and there are three things we learn here uh, about our relationship with the church. We're, we're told that in Christ, each believer is unique, and each believer is essential to the body of Christ, and each believer belongs to all the others. So verse 4, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In Christ you... And I could point to every one of you. You are unique. And you are essential to the church. And you belong to everybody else that's here. Now Paul illustrates this truth using uh, the human body. All sorts of things make up our bodies, right? Hearts, hands, heads, feet, faces, follicles, brains, bones, biceps. All different. All doing different things and yet all part of one body working together for the good of the body. Every one of us has a part of Christ's body. We are a part of it, and we have a part to play, which is specific to that person. It is what God made you to do. You are unique, and you are essential. Every one of us is vital to the health of the body, so we belong to one another. And if you want to understand yourself accurately, you need to know that. You, you know, God did not make Lone Ranger Christians. He, he made us to be a part of what he is doing in our world, and he has a work in our world through the church. It is his church. He owns it. He builds it. It's not out of brick or stone, but out of people. He makes his church, and he made us to be a part of that church. I mean, we're a part of, of his universal church as it's spread out across the globe and throughout time, but he expects every one of us to be a part of the local expression of that universal truth. God expects his people to be a part of a church like this. This isn't the only one in this area. There are a lot of others that are good churches. But this is one of them. And you're unique. You are essential to God's church, to what God's doing here. And you belong to the rest of the people that come here too. Now that's really, I think, more than you and I would expect. I have to tell you, without God's word, we would have no clue what the church really is. Left to ourselves, we would miss it on it completely. Even with God's word, there are so many people that think that the church is a building. And they think that by going there, they've done some good thing which gets them a few points with God. And they could hardly be more wrong. 
That's not what the church is, and that's not what it does. And other people, they're kind of further along in their understanding. They know the church isn't a building. They know it's people who make the church, and they know that, and they know that fact from God's word, right? And then they learn more from that word. They know that there are, um, we're not here to earn credit with God when we come here. I mean, God already loves us. We come here to worship the God who has already loved us and saved us. So we enjoy God, and we enjoy the company of other believers. And yet we get even more than that out of God's Word. You know, when we gather here as a church, He meets with us in a way that is special. It's important enough to say this. I've said it again, but and I know you've heard it, but it's important, and it's worth saying again. It's worth reminding you that God is omniscient. That means he is everywhere at all times, in every place. There is nowhere where God isn't. And yet you and I know, don't we, that God is with the believer in a way he is not with the unbeliever. See, he dwells in our heart if we put our trust in him. And that's not the case for the, uh, uh, those on the outside. And then we know, too, don't we, that as believers we can be closer to God at some times than at others. We're told, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you, not because he went anywhere, but you did. And as you draw near, he wants that relationship, and he comes right to you. We wandered away from him. And on top of all of that, on top of all of that, Jesus tells us that not only is he everywhere, not only, not only can we be a believer and have him live in our heart, not only can we be closer to God than we are maybe even right now, on top of all of that, Jesus tells us that where just even two or three gather together in his name, like happens here on every Sunday morning, he is right here in our midst. There, this is something more than we have when we, uh, when we gather as a church. It's more than we have under here. God reveals him to us, to himself to us when we gather as a church in a way he does not happen when we're alone. And yet, there's one more truth about the church which we can know, and only because God reveals in his word. We can experience, and, and we do experience it, but we wouldn't understand it without God's word. You see, we are being built into a living temple where God's spirit can dwell. Paul says in Ephesians, and in Christ, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's not something we do. It's something God does when we gather. And it only happens in a community of other believers. No longer in the temple in Jerusalem, God now dwells in the church wherever we find it. This is not merely an organization. It's not a club. It's not a business or a group or a party or a society. This is a living, spiritual house. It is the body of Christ. I don't know how many of you are fans of C.S. Lewis. Uh, I love Lewis. I don't know that I've read everything, but I've read an awful lot. And, and I love the Narnia tales and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is, uh, is from one of those tales in the... Uh, the adventure ship puts into a small island uh, uh, 
as you read through the story, and it happens to be an island of a, of a magician. And as things unfold in the story, Lucy, who's the youngest, has to make her way into the magician's house by herself and find his book of spells and break the spell which lays upon the inhabitants of the island. Now, the magician ends up being a really good guy, but Lucy doesn't know that as she winds her way through the house to the room where the book is. And she finds that book, and she begins opening the pages and looking for the spell she needs. But as she looks, she sees a a lot of other spells, and one in particular caught her attention. There was a spell which she could say which would make her the most beautiful woman in the world so beautiful that people and nations would go to war over her the interesting thing about that book was that in the margin there were all sorts of illustrations and the illustrations as you read began to change and reflect the person who was reading and lucy saw in the margin what uh, she would look like if she said the spell and it simply took her breath away And she wanted to repeat those words, but she knew she shouldn't, and she moved on. Now, a little later on, she uh, accomplished her task, and she met the magician of the house. And then she met, again, the great lion, Aslan, who represents Christ. And she's looking at him. And as she's looking at him with her eyes fixed on him, she becomes almost as beautiful as the girl in the margin of that book. She didn't know it. Her eyes were on him. And and something like that happens to us. When we understand in an honest way who we are, and when we fix our eyes on our Lord, we are changed individually, yes, but also together. God is making us into something beautiful beyond compare. He is making us into the bride of Christ. You don't think about that often when we come here. But that's exactly what he's doing. Using the faith as a standard by which we measure things, each believer should have an accurate and honest knowledge of themselves. In Christ, each one is unique and essential part of the body and belongs to all the others. Now, there's one more thing to consider this morning, one more thing that helps us to know ourselves. And that is, is each one who belongs to Christ has his or her own graciously given gift which ought to be used in the faith and abundantly employed. That's what Paul tells us in verse 6, and he follows it up with a, with a number of examples uh, through the end of verse 8. So we read there, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy, uh, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's in, to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's to give, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Part of who we are, when we belong to God, part of our uniqueness is that everyone has hers or her gifts which are to be used to advance God's kingdom here on this earth. We don't all have the same gift sets, and nor are there any 
one gift that everyone has. These are gifts given to us by God. They are in accordance with his grace. That means that God decides what gifts you and I get. And the gifts are an expression of God's grace to us. We do not earn them. But we can use them, and we are supposed to use them. And so I think we maybe can think of this uh, kind of like the old fire brigades. You know, back in the days before there were fire trucks or even fire wagons drawn by horses, when a blaze broke out in a home or a business in town, everyone in the town came to help, and they all brought buckets. And some people started drawing water from the well and filling those buckets. And when a bucket was filled, it was passed to someone else who passed it on to another, and so on down the line until the last person threw the water on the fire. And then he would turn back and hand the empty bucket to the person who had just given it to him as they handed him another full bucket. Nearly every person in that line would be holding an empty bucket and passing it one direction and a full one and passing it in the other. And that's how they would put out a fire. Or, or we could think of it in the early days of our country when neighbors got together and raised a barn in one day. Everyone had their jobs. <laughs> Children would carry the smaller pieces of laundry. The younger kids would uh, gather nails. Women would bring water to the men when they were thirsty. They'd make the food for the day. Men were sawing. Others were cutting wood. And others were nailing things together. One group was building one wall, and another was making a different side. And soon they got together, and using ropes and brute strength, they lifted the walls upright and nailed them together. Rafters were cut. Doors were built. And at the end of the day, a barn stood where there had been no barn the day before. That's what God is doing. He's at work in our world through his church. And every one of us has a part that we're supposed to be doing. I have a few more things to say, and I'm going to bring this to a close. But I think this is important. In the first item that Paul lists, he lists prophecy. And for our purposes, we can simply think of that as speaking God's word to his people. And he tells the Romans, if that's their gift, that they, uh, they need to use it in accordance with the measure of their faith. So our faith is the standard we use to know how we're supposed to use those gifts properly. And, and without going into all the um, complications of the Greek, the standard of faith, applies to all of the gifts in that list, and it applies to all the gifts, not just prophecy. So whether we're teaching or serving or giving or leading, the standard for any one of those things is our faith. Our faith tells us how we are to use those things. And it is faith which allows you to discover what your gifts are. Now, uh, my early days as a Christian, I went through uh, some really difficult times. And um, God, in his goodness and grace, led me to what I call my home church, Brandywine Valley Baptist Church in Wilmington, Delaware. And there he brought healing to me, and he began my earnest education as a believer. And during that time, my faith grew. And somehow, I just knew I had to express that faith in something. I had 
to doom something. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that the inside of me had to come out in something. And then I heard they needed a Sunday school teacher for third and fourth grade, and I said I'd do it. I'd never done anything like it before. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't want anybody to see me do what I was going to try to do. But I was going to do it no matter what. And God used me. Me. Of all people, he used me. And it was wonderful. And I have to tell you, I tried other things which weren't so good. But that was okay. I was discovering what God had made me for. And when you realize that God wants you to do something, when you're willing to do anything, a door opens. And if you walk through that door, you'll discover something. You will either find your gift waiting for there, uh, there uh, for you there on that side of that door, or you'll know this is not for me. But either way, you're moving in the right direction. You've taken the first step and learning more of what God made you to do. You see, you have a gift. Likely you have more than one. God expects you to use it. And the people around you right now need what you have. Our faith is how we discover our gift. Our faith is how we use them. Our faith is the measure of who we really are. By faith, we think of ourselves with sound understanding. We know ourselves, both the good and the bad. We know better because of that God's love for each one of us. We realize each believer is unique and essential and belongs to all other believers. And he uses his her her gift to advance the kingdom of our great God. It's what we're supposed to do. Now that's something good to know. Don't you think? Well, now that you know it, you're responsible. You have something God wants you to do. You will never be sorry when you step out in faith. To God be the glory. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we really are um, overwhelmed at your grace and your goodness and your, um, your greatness. What a, what a wonderful God you are. We thank you, Father, for um, calling us out of the darkness and into the light. Thank you for putting your spirit inside of us. Thank you for equipping us for the work you've called us to do. Thank you that you have plans for us, Lord, that are good. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. As we kind of stumble along the way, heading toward your kingdom, 
trying to bring as many people with us as we can. Thank you in Jesus' name.